0: Joining us on our Brooklyn chat, Firstman, we're fortunate to have you on to discuss the proposal that Drawdown, Climate Drawdown, is advocating that would see our planet start to move in the right direction regarding climate over the next couple of decades. And I'd like to understand a lot more about what your organization is specifically advocating. We all hope that the climate situation does not continue to get worse, but we're obviously fearing for the worst and hoping for the best. How do we obtain this climate reversal? We're all looking at Hurricane Harvey's disastrous flooding in Southeast Texas, Hermosol in Florida, other catastrophic events around the world. There are lots of mixed messages out there. Um, So maybe you can just start off explaining your organization's take on climate change at the moment.
1: Yes, uh, thank you Ben for having me, me on today. Project Drawdown was really founded to counter the, the, the really prevailing sentiment around climate change. Over the past decade, that has kind of focused on fear in the media of presenting the dire effects of climate change and global warming, confusion over the science behind it. There's great science out there, but how it's portrayed is often it distances of science uh, from, from everyday uh, people who aren't familiar with it. To empower, in the sense of disempowerment, of the lack of personal agency to make change, all of this sheer confusion, harm, it leads to apathy, it leads to the inability to kind of feel like you can make change and to do anything to kind of accept the status quo. And so we were founded, really, Project Jordan, to counter that prevailing sentiment and to, to reframe the conversation to one of opportunity, understanding, and optimism. And we do this by presenting a foundation of research and science-based evaluation of technologies and practices that, if scaled, can help reduce atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases uh, over time. And our proposition here is, uh, by reducing those concentrations, we can affect global cooling um, and have that reversing of global warming. Solutions that do one of three things that either replace existing fossil fuel-based electricity generation with clean, renewable sources that reduce overconsumption through efficient technologies, behavior change, and to biosequester carbon through a process that we all know and learn about in school called photosynthesis, by capturing carbon in our plants and soils. And so what we're really trying to do is show that if we take on these technologies and practices and aggressively implement them over time, that we can actually affect drawdown and affect that global cooling over time. It won't happen immediately, but we need to get there in order to start that going. Um, So so that's the the scientific research-based foundation of the project. We're going to talk about communicating that science to different audiences. And that's where the book Drawdown kind of comes in, written by, principally by Paul Hawkins, who really brings this technical material to life.
0: Right. So now before we get onto to the specifics of your plausible scenario, Chad, is your general scientific statement that the prevailing sentiment in the media is just too pessimistic, there are too many doomsday scenarios, do you say that it actually won't get that bad between now and 2050 as far as hurricanes, storm surges, fires? What is your objective take on what most people who are activists in this space say will be happening over the next few decades?
1: Right. Well, I mean, to start, I'm not a climate scientist measuring the effects of global warming on weather systems, is a very complex endeavor, which our research does not evaluate that. The science does point strongly to the effect of global warming on increased frequency and uh, the magnitude of severe weather conditions like hurricanes, drought, and fires. And I don't know how bad it will get. There will certainly be increased frequency, let me rephrase maybe not with certainty, but with strong confidence we believe that there will be increased uh, frequency and, and, and magnitude of these events. And of course, there is a lag time between the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and global temperature changes. And because of the steep rise in concentrations we already have today, we are likely to experience increased temperatures and, and related effects on, on weather systems. But it can go from bad to worse, depending on what we do today. If we carry on with the business as usual, we set ourselves on a pathway towards much deeper temperature rise over the next 100 years with, with severe, to say the least, severe uh, effects on social, economic, and ecological systems. However, if we ambitiously implement solutions now and start now and continue to accelerate adoption of those solutions over time, again, through replacing, DC and bias we can not only limit potential temperature rise substantially, but over time lead to global cooling. That, in a sense, has the effect of reducing the amount of these, what we would consider extreme weather events, over kind of what they would otherwise have to be if we don't make these changes. So we really have the potential now to transform our future, but we must act.
0: Okay, so looking at your plausible scenario, which is presented on the Drawdown website, by there's a summary of solutions by their so-called overall rank. and. I'm very curious about the broad contours of this sort of listing before we get into the nitty-gritty of each individual one. Maybe you could just give our audience a general sense of what are the big ticket items, what are the things that we as a society are going to need to change? How do you start off by framing the most important steps that we should be taking?
1: Well, I think first of all, understanding that the... Our plausible scenario represents our most conservative scenario. It's not to say that it is conservative, in fact, quite ambitious. One of the key things we need to understand, I'd say there are two things. First of all, to understand that it's a cross-sectoral, that there are many different sectors. We often tend to think of reducing um, emissions. We think of energy right off the bat. We think of electricity generation. Sometimes we think of transportation. Sometimes we think of buildings. But the reality is that our entire system, our entire economic and social system, uses produces emissions at different scales. So we need to also be thinking about solutions, not just in terms of energy, but also including things like buildings and how we construct buildings and what are the appliances that we're using. We have to think about our transportation choices and mobility options. We have to think about the materials that we use, how much we use, how much we waste, and how we produce those materials. We need to think about land use, how we value our ecosystems, our forests, our coastal wetlands. Every part of our land system is incredibly important and can either be a net emitter or a net sequester. And it's our choices to think about what we want our world to look like and understand that all of these sectors are really key. And, of course, there's our agricultural sector. That's the first step is really understanding that this is a full systems approach. Right. This is this is looking at our entire way we do business. And the second thing is to understand all of these activities when you talk about separate sectors are integrated. They're they're intertwined. What we produce, what our agricultural production, how much we consume, how much we waste, how much we are able then to compost. Uh, how much are we able to All of these solutions work in a system together. That's an important piece that we all are part of. Everything we do is part of that, part of the system. And then I think the third key component of these solutions is to to remember each solution has cascading benefits. We like to say that these are solutions we would like to be adopting whether or not global warming was a problem. When we think about family planning and educating women, we don't, this, the primary benefit isn't in fact carbon. The primary benefit is human rights, gender equality, economic prosperity, and then also carbon. When we think about ecosystem management, value of forests go far beyond just carbon. So on down the line when we think about agricultural systems, we can sequester carbon, yes, it's true, but it also provides soil health and productivity increases by adopting these solutions. That means increased yield uh, and increased food security. It's important to remember that we're in a system all working together and that by adopting these solutions, there's actually all of these additional benefits, these co-benefits.
0: So many people might assume that power plants and electricity generation is really the most important factor in drawing down global warming. Your sense seems to be that that's not quite true, that there are a lot of other things that are probably a bit more important.
1: Um, well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, electricity generation is the largest emitter of emissions. In and of itself, when we think about electricity generation, and, and particularly over time as you have increased populations and economic growth, It has increased electrification uh, in areas that certainly do not have access to electricity. So the emissions that are associated with electricity generation are quite high, and actually the largest component. But in terms of the overall impact of the solution, what we're actually finding is the food system is more substantial. Now, that's partially because there are avoided emissions that are associated, food waste and the supply-side solutions and demand-side solutions, but there's also the sequestration effect. So in terms of the impact of solutions, we're seeing was well, kind of surprising to us. We weren't really expecting it. We were expecting to see electricity generation, but in terms of the impact, the combination of sequestration and avoided emissions makes it a powerful impact as a sector. But electricity generation is still right up there with that, is in fact one of the most important sectors that we can be doing, and there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle than than just just power plants. So we really need to be addressing this broadly. And to be fair, in our most aggressive, our most uh, ambitious, optimistic scenario, what we call the optimum scenario, we are looking at a hundred percent clean grid and the grid infrastructure with the capacity to take on those variable renewables. In our assessment, we definitely are thinking very deep investments into transforming existing power plant infrastructure.
0: And we'll get back to the power plants and energy generation. It looks like the first item on your list that will reduce the total amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide pollution is refrigerant management. That sounds a little bit ominous, but also potentially confusing. What exactly is the story with refrigerants? Does that literally mean the chemicals that are used to keep our food cold?
1: Yes, exactly. So most refrigerators and air conditioners use hydrofluorocarbons, HSCs. Now these are gases which will replace ozone destroying fluorofluorocarbons, TFCs, Following the 1987 uh, Montreal Protocol, we had a shift to use of hydrofluorocarbons. Now hydrofluorocarbons have very very high uh, global warming uh, potential, up to a thousand to even uh, some some uh, HFCs have up to ten twelve thousand tons of equivalent CO2. Each greenhouse gas, these are, these are fluorinated gases. Now, there are other types of greenhouse gases like we know about carbon dioxide, uh, there's methane, there's nitrous oxide, fluorinated gases, as I said. Now, each of these uh, greenhouse gases has a different capacity to trap heat in the atmosphere and a different lifetime and a different process through which they uh, are removed or destroyed from the atmosphere. And it's that combination of all these gases and different global warming potentials that have the effect of global warming. What we tend to do, and what we've done in our, our analysis and in our book is to convert these into what we call CO2 equivalent, carbon dioxide equivalent values based on the global warming potential. Now HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons in refrigerators and air conditioners, have thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. So even in much smaller quantities in the atmosphere, they have a, a much larger impact in terms of warming. Now, what the solution essentially says is if we can control leakages of these refrigerants from existing appliances to better management and through the destruction of refrigerants at the end of life, we can dramatically reduce the amount of hydrochloric carbons that are entering the atmosphere and having this effect. And then rather than allowing them to be landfilled which often happens, and then leakage of these HSCs occurs over time, there are processes which we can destroy them. And if we can destroy them right off the bat, they don't enter the atmosphere. We do not include the planned phase out of hydrofluorocarbons, uh, which is you know part of the Kigali agreement. Last October in 2016 was announced, and what the Kigali Agreement essentially is a ceasing of production, phasing out over time depending on the economic conditions of the countries and so on. Those reductions from Kigali, the impact from refrigerant management can rise to, our estimate, around 160 gigatons of CO2 equivalent, reducing the production and of HSCs and then destroying the net- those that do still exist at end of life. So it's really a, a powerful solution that we weren't expecting. Again, when we would see electricity generate solar wind or some of the sort of typical things people think of, and refrigerant bounced right to the top and, in fact, uh, could potentially be much higher.
0: Just to get this straight really quickly, Chad, you're saying that precisely because we began to use different substances that would replace the CFCs that were leading to a big hole in the ozone layer... We created a separate problem, which was air conditioners that were using coolants that led to more global warming than pretty much anything else that we do. Even though we solved the ozone problem mostly, we created what might be an even bigger problem.
1: I don't think I'd go so far as to quantify it in relative terms. I don't know if it would be a bigger problem or or, or I wouldn't quite say that. I would say we've created a different problem. It's in the choice that we make in what types of coolants we're using. And there are other options other than hydro, for carbons that can be used or even natural coolant refrigerants that could be used in place of this. What we did choose to replace uh, CFCs at the time was done was because of probably the economic liability and, and capacity to make that replacement. But it's also important to remember there are many different kinds of HFCs, but as a as a whole, what we wanted to do is stop using them uh, mm-hmm. and, and using them as uh, using other alternatives.
0: Correct. Now moving on to the energy sources of greenhouse gases, looking at wind turbines, is that really the second biggest thing that we as a society can do to create less of a climate change problem and to move towards drawdown, constructing wind turbines? The
1: short answer is yes, they can be. important to remember that all of these estimations of solutions are potential futures. Okay? They are based on an estimation from lots of existing sources. That show the potential of onshore wind and, and solar and all these solutions over time. In truth, there are many different futures that are possible. So, yes, in our estimation, onshore wind turbines can be very impactful, principally because electricity generation, as we talked about, is a large emitter of greenhouse gases. And by replacing fossil fuel-based generation with clean renewables, like wind and solar, we dramatically reduce the amount of emissions against the atmosphere. There's some embodied energy in the production of the materials around this, so building of actual wind turbine has what we call you know, indirect emissions or embodied energy that are associated with that. They don't kind of compare well to the overall impact of, uh, of a clean grid. And what we're seeing is that the cost of wind, particularly onshore, are dropping precipitously almost. I mean, they're becoming very, very competitive with other forms of fossil fuels, already be beating out coal, and, and may well soon be beating out natural gas. It's potential to do this. When it becomes economically viable to be implemented globally, in order to make financial sense, then we have a much larger and accelerated trajectory of adoption of wind globally. That combination of reduced cost and increased adoption makes it such an important solution. So solar could drop faster than wind, and that may serve to sweep the two uh, in terms of the overall global adoption. In other words, you might have a lot more solar than wind based on the cost and the price changes over time, And then, of course, the emissions can change. So the point here is, you know, while we say wind is number two, and, of course, if we include um, onshore and offshore, offshore is uh, number 22, to combine both of those, uh, it ends up being the number one solution past refrigerant management. We choose the lower boundary of those aggressive adoptions. Um, And as we become more ambitious with our drawdown scenario and and optimum scenario, we're choosing different Destinations within that boundary, within that range from other sources.
0: And you guys rank food waste reduction and eating a plant-rich diet pretty highly here. Let's talk for a second about plants and, and eating. How important are those to the mission of reversing global warming and accomplishing this cooling of the climate around 2050?
1: Plant-rich diet, food is extremely important. What we choose to eat, how we choose to consume it, uh, in other words, how much waste versus consumption we have, and how we choose to produce it is the number one sector, okay? It comprises eight of the top 20 solutions on our list. The plant-rich diet, as in, you know, we don't – this isn't a vegetarian diet. This isn't a, a vegan diet. What we're trying to say here is we're not trying to dictate a lifestyle for the world. We're not saying this is the one and only lifestyle that you have to uh, adopt, What we're trying to say is if we choose a diet that is healthy, a diet that reduces the the total consumption of calories per day to a healthy level of about 2,200 to 2,500 calories per person per day, as well as limiting the amount of red meat, for example, to about 57 to 60 grams per day, reducing the total quantity of meat and reducing the total overall that we consume, we get to be a plant-rich diet, which is a healthy diet, but the amount of emissions that are associated with the production distribution of food, it can be avoided by just those components. And of course, uh, red meat, particular livestock, have very high emissions factors. You know, they, they produce a lot of emissions across the supply chain. So by eating less of red meat in particular, meat in general, due to healthy levels, then we can have much the uh, emissions throughout the chain. And again, here we go back to that cascading benefit. It's not just about eating more plants and eating less meat and carbon emissions. It's about being healthy. These are healthy options to choose. And another key point about diet is it's different depending on where you are in the world. In high-income countries, we overconsume. We consume well above 2,500 uh, calories per day. In lower-income countries, there's per capita a much lower consumption. They're not getting enough nutrients, not getting enough caloric intake. And this is on a country-by-country basis, so it differs across the world. And so what we've done is actually modeled increased consumption in low-income countries, decreased consumption in high-income countries. So it's really about ensuring that everybody in the world has access to a healthy diet with enough nutrients and and so it's not just about a total reduction, reduce, reduce, reduce. It's a combination of these two things really ha- produces the financial impact of uh, a plant-rich diet.
0: And to go along with changes in food consumption, you also list these land-use changes, which uh, overlap some of the time, but other parts of the time, the issue is tropical forests that are cut down for making wood furniture, for burning fuel. And then you list silvopasture, that seems to be the ninth item on your list. Maybe you could just explain a little bit more about what that involves. I'm not sure our average listener would understand what that concept means, this shift in using this ancient practice that integrates trees and pasture into a single system. It seems like there's some overlap there with the way that we use our forests. And, and Oh, bodies. yes.
1: What we're looking at in terms of tropical forest restoration is the Protection of currently dated lands. This is land that was previously forested, it has been deforested, or degraded to a certain extent. Um, by taking that degraded land, protecting it, and allowing natural regrowth to occur. Now, what natural growth means is that basically not doing anything <laughs> and allowing, over time, the natural ecology of that system to extend into this newly protected uh, land uh, to grow naturally and. What we're finding is tropical forest restoration, very, very high sequestration rates. Um, With tropical forests, they range from roughly about 2.15 to 4.61. Now, what a sequestration rate means is the annual rate at which plants absorb carbon dioxide and convert it into biomass or soil organic. Carbon right so it's that annual rate on a, a per hectare basis. so the point here is you have very high sequestration rate for tropical forest restoration under a natural growth regrowth regime. and so by allocating degraded certain amounts of degraded land that is appropriate that's applicable to natural regrowth. Silver pasture is, is sort of a different solution. This is about uh, livestock management, how we produce our, our, our food. Mm. And as you pointed out, silver pasture is of course an, an ancient uh, a practice. As is, just as an aside, many of the regenerative agriculture and agroforestry practices that are, in, uh, pr- are presented in our books are not new modern techniques, new, you know, cutting edge agricultural practices. It's really about replacing modern conventional agriculture and livestock management systems with these more traditional approaches. So what civil pasture essentially is, it's just the addition of trees to pastures uh, for increased uh, productivity and biosequestration. sequestration. It's basically it's managed grazing with trees, right? And trees we can think of as one of our researchers uh, described as a, there's the sticks of carbon. okay? The biomass when you look at a tree, that's basically carbon.
0: We haven't yet talked, Chad, about the importance of uh educating women and family planning. Those are quite prominent on your list. Yep. And I find that fascinating because it obviously is targeting, it seems, population growth, compelling people to have fewer children. Is that am I getting the right sense from what that really well, entails?
1: I would not use the word compelling people to. It's about access to education and voluntary family planning. With educating girls and women, what we're finding is that girls who stay in who have access to school, schooling, and stay in school for about 12 to 13 years, a secondary school, make dramatically different life choices later on. They have delayed onset of marriage. They develop careers. Different types of careers and improve their household uh, economic conditions, which improves their livelihoods. But they also tend to have fewer children, and family sizes tend to be smaller um, it, with women who are educated to that level. Now, the effect of that decrease in um, family size actually occurs from about eight years of schooling through 13 years, but the most pronounced effects are in 13 years. And so what we're trying to say here, though, is so many parts of the world either do not have uh, gender equity in terms of schooling, where you have boys who do have access to education or schooling who are denied to girls. Empowering women to stay in school has so many primary benefits, but it also has this impact of reduced family size Now, the vehicle through which that family size change occurs is still family planning. When, how, and if they choose to have a family, education, clinics, contraceptions, and so on down the line. Well, you're right there. This does have the result of limiting population growth. UN estimates uh, that by 2050, a high case scenario, uh, we could have up to 10.7 billion people on the planet. Their medium variant looks at, estimates about 9.6 billion tons has the potential to reduce that population or to to lower that population growth. Um, and what that means is less energy, less electricity generation, less fewer buildings that are required, uh, fewer cars on the road. It just means less consumption over time. So it has this really powerful impact. Roughly about 119 uh, gigatons.
0: There's almost a catch-22, a sort of paradox there, whereby the more human development is accomplished, in effect, the more wealth a household has. And in turn, likely the amount of carbon emissions that they're producing will go up, but at the same time, they will begin to have fewer children. And so even though per capita, the consumption of fuel and, and the production of greenhouse gases will rise, there will be less People that are consuming and emitting at that level, is that a correct uh, interpretation of of what happens when a population does become more educated?
1: I mean, there are competing arguments that say through increased education, more individuals are likely to use and adopt solutions that are available to avoid overconsumption or to reduce emissions that are associated with the products that they're choosing. But you're right. As economies grow, we, we do see the increased use of all of these things that generate emissions. I think part of the point is here that you're right that in that future world where we actually do want to have everybody the opportunity to have access to electricity, for example. There's an argument here for this should be a basic human right. Everybody has the right to feed. Everybody has the right to a dwelling. We want economic growth. And in those future scenarios, I think that we should be thinking about that population size in that situation of economic growth as well. So I do think you're right, but also if we get on the right track, then we can fulfill both the needs of economic growth, improve livelihoods, and achieve drawdown.
0: Very interesting. Now, last question, Chad, just wanted to... Finish up looking at energy and electricity generation again. With individual households, do you think that rooftop solar, is that the one way that individuals and households can really have the biggest impact here? Compel your co-op or condo building or, you know, the rental association to get panels on the roof of the apartment building. Do you think that's the most immediate near-term thing that people are able to do to affect change in this area?
1: In the area of electricity generation?
0: Well, just in general, it seems like some of the other components on this list are quite long-term or they're quite sort of macro, implementing solar consumption habits. That really is is something that does obviously cost a lot of money to install and get off the ground, but it's something quite concrete and that does result in a very tangible step that's being taken rather than behavioral shifts.
1: Rather than behavioral. Okay, that's a, that's a good point then. Because I mean, what I would first say is the one of the most substantive impacts an individual can have is the choices they make on what and how they consume food. What we choose to purchase in terms of commodities, in terms of what type of food it is, right? The label on that food. So we can actually make choices about whether we're buying organic or regenerative. It is increasingly becoming a movement to create new certifications, not just organic, but to the point where it's regenerative. Agriculture is being prominently the same, and soon we'll be able to make those choices. So we can make choices sure of what we purchase and then how we consume. If we eat what we purchase, a simple concept, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of throwing it away, all the leftovers, that in and out itself, all those choices we make at the household scale from what we eat, what we buy and how much we eat it can be absolutely one of the most powerful impacts that every individual on the planet can take today. If we're talking about technology, yes, I think rooftop solar is very impactful, and I think the more individual households that are investing in it now will have a payback period over time, and so they will be making their money back, at, by and large. More people who are purchasing it now is going to drive those prices down, And so we're going to increasingly see investments in solar farms and rooftop solar projects result in driving down a uh, learning rate and affecting lower prices overall, which then in turn allows it to be adopted more. So, yes, early investors, people who are investing right now are extremely important choices they can make. But, of course, there are other things. Buying LED lighting, for example, looking to invest in a cool roof or looking to invest in a, a high-efficient heat pump. I think there are a lot of actual a lot of things that individual households can choose to do. Right now, individual choices often are the most powerful in our set of solutions here. We see refrigerant management at the top there on that that's a you know business model and government policies required there. There's wind turbines. But there are so many of these solutions, food and rooftop and our buildings and our choices we make in our transportation modality, whether we choose to walk or bike let's take public transport, or what kind of vehicle we purchase—is it an EV? Is it a hybrid? That those are choices we all can make, and we are constantly being um, faced with these choices all, all the time. Whether it's daily basis of food, or it's you know once every the lifetime right of a vehicle then you need to purchase a new vehicle, we we come across these choices, and you know, it's about understanding what we as individuals can do to affect this kind of change. A long-winded way of saying that, yes, rooftop solar projects are extremely important, but there's many things that we can all be doing right now.
0: Fascinating, Chad. Now, is there somewhere that the audience can turn to to find out more about Drawdown? Would you direct them to your website? Facebook, to buy the book?
1: Definitely go out to buy the book. It's a great read. I like to say that it's the kind of book that you could take to the beach on a Sunday and you can read the book and enjoy your day. That kind of book about climate global warming right there is something that is very different from a lot of books that are out there. You could read before you go to bed and not have a nightmare. You can pick it up the Mm -hmm. next day and enjoy yourself. Seriously. And if there's more information that you want from the book, We put a lot of material on our website about these solutions and about what you can do to enact change.
0: Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, is a New York Times bestseller, and so that's available now for anyone who's interested. Chad Frischman, the Vice President and Research Director at Project Drawdown. We thank you so much for being on Air Brooklyn.
1: Excellent. All right, Ben, thanks so much. Appreciate it.
0: This is your host, Ben Tivin. Over and out. Ciao, ciao. That's all for now.